Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Blurred Box. I am Chloe. I'm Pooja. I'm Sophie. I'm Andrew. I'm Clifford. And today we are all a bit more acknowledging of climate change in the past, which I guess would suggest it's a pretty pressing issue, despite COVID upstaging it right now. But it's pressing nonetheless. And today, Clifford is going to help us introduce us to our special guest who's with us to talk about it today. So our special guest today is um, Dr. Robert Stowe. Um, Dr. Robert Stowe is the executive director of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program, and he's the co-director of the Harvard Project on Climate Agreements. Um, he works at the Harvard Kennedy School, where he teaches about um, subjects regarding climate change and climate change policy. And he's also been to numerous climate change summits, and we are very glad to have him here on our podcast. So Dr. Stowe, we're gonna start off pretty generally here. Um, what do you think is the most important event in the world of climate change policy at this time? Well, the most important immediate event that's in the news for good reason is the climate summit that uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris are hosting almost as we speak. It may be over now, but it's been held over the last couple of days. This represents the re-entry of the United States into a leadership, a global leadership position with respect to climate change. Uh, we've backtracked quite a bit over the last four years, but now we're back. There were some good things that came out of the summit. Uh, if nothing else, uh, the United States is talking with other leaders in the world. Uh, we can talk more about the summit if you want. That's a kind of uh, point in time, these two days. I think an ongoing event, if you want to call it that, or uh, important long-term progression is, involves technological innovation, which is absolutely crucial to addressing climate change. and. You know, the, the best known example of this is innovation in renewable generation technology. So wind turbines, solar panels, innovation has caused these, uh, innovation in larger markets, I should say, have caused these to come down in price very significantly over just the last 10 years, um, which uh, has resulted in solar and wind power being adopted much more widely. Yeah, awesome. And to give the audience a bit of background, um, Dr. Stowe and our group were kind of talking about different aspects of climate change that he's interested in and, and has been working through. And geoengineering was a term that came up in our previous conversation before we started recording. And so, uh, Dr. Stowe, would you mind uh, expanding a bit on that, given um, it seems in the vein of what you were just talking about? Sure. Uh so geoengineering refers to large scale um, manipulation of our environment to dampen down the effects or impacts, the adverse impacts of climate change without actually doing anything to solve the problem. Just to put geoengineering in context, there are three broad approaches to dealing with climate change. And in the language of us climate policy wonks, um, these are mitigation, uh, which refers to approaches to reducing emissions of greenhouse gases that cause climate change. The next is adaptation. So given that the world is going to get a lot warmer, no matter what we do right now, no matter how much we do reduce emissions, it's going to get a lot warmer. We all have to adapt to a changed world. So adaptation, you know, uh, uh, breeding 
crops that are more resistant to high temperatures, building seawalls to protect against more powerful storms and sea level rise, moving away from the sea uh, if we don't want to build seawalls and the like all fall under the category of adaptation. The third approach, which has, has been discussed much more recently is uh, geoengineering. You know, what if we can't do enough mitigation quickly enough? And what if we can't adapt fast enough? And at least parts of the world get so hot that people can't live there, but they can't move either. Um, then you might try geoengineering. Now, there are actually two kinds of geoengineering also. One is uh, referred to as solar radiation management. And basically it involves spraying fine particles of different kinds of materials into the upper atmosphere to reflect some of the sunlight that's coming in uh, to the earth. And this has the result of cooling the earth. Now um, we have seen uh, natural solar radiation management uh, when big volcanoes have gone off. So when Mount St. Helens went off, uh, gosh, was it 25 years ago now, 30 years ago? Uh, in um, the Northwest, the Pacific Northwest, it caused noticeable cooling around the world because of the fine particles, primarily of sulfur dioxide that went up into the uh, stratosphere. So now we're figuring out how to do that artificially by spraying SO2 particles and possibly other materials into the upper atmosphere with uh, aircraft that can go that high or, or through other means. The other kind of geoengineering is actually very different. And in some ways is a fourth category of addressing climate change. And that's actually taking the carbon dioxide, which is the main greenhouse gas that causes climate change out of the atmosphere uh, through mechanical and chemical means. Now that's very expensive right now, but you know, I think we should keep doing research on it and technological development because you know, it may come down in price enough, uh, perhaps in the uh, second half of this century so that it could make some contribution to addressing the problem. Yeah, I think that was sort of all fascinating to me, at least especially on the geoengineering, um, sort of a whole thing that I hadn't heard a ton about. But I guess what really stuck out to me talking about adaptation there and sort of the inevitability of the climate crisis as it stands now. I'm just sort of curious where you stand, because I know in the news you hear sort of a varying range of like alarmist, like, oh no, we're all going to be under the water in 10 years to sort of the whole opposite side of like, it's a hoax. Um, and so I'm just sort of wondering what, how you feel about the current trajectory we're on and where you see us going. And do you have hope that policy can make the climate crisis a little less terrible and world ending? Those are big questions, Andrew. Um, one of your questions was easy, so it's not a hoax. <laughs> I can uh, respond very quickly to that one. Um, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty about the impacts of climate change, or as climate scientists and economists refer to them as climate damages. We are not going to keep global average surface temperature to 1.5 degrees or even 2 degrees, no matter how much politicians and advocates like to talk about it. Uh, we should try, you know, because maybe we'll hit 2.5 if we're really lucky. But what's really important is you suggested in your question actually is um, not so much what we do uh, relative to some, I would say, actually arbitrary temperature target, but rather, 
you know, what we can accomplish relative to what would have happened if we hadn't done anything. So there have been estimates that the pledges for reducing emissions under the Paris Agreement, you know, might result by themselves uh, in a, you know, 3.5 uh, degree temperature rise rather than what would have happened without those pledges, which would have been more like six degrees. Would it be helpful, by the way, if I very briefly defined what I mean by, you know, temperature rise when we're talking about climate change? No, yeah, for sure. Go for it. I think a lot yeah. of our listeners along with us are not on a very limited knowledge basis. So sure, sure. It, it's important because everybody refers to this two degree target. So what we mean uh, in this context is the, the average surface temperature of the earth um, averaged over space, which means the whole globe, both oceans and land. And there are ten, literally tens of thousands of monitoring stations around the globe, some floating on buoys in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, um, you know, some in Northern Canada where nobody lives uh, and they're surrounded by snow. And, you know, we have lots of temperature monitoring stations. So averaged over the, uh, spatially over the globe and then averaged over time over the course of a year. That yields, you know, an average global surface temperature. And we can see how that global average surface temperature changes. Basically, the temperature has gone up about 1.1 degree centigrade since pre-industrial times. That doesn't seem like much, does it? <laughs> if you jumped into one swimming pool that was one temperature and then another swimming pool that was 1.1 degrees centigrade warmer, you wouldn't notice, <laughs> uh, you really wouldn't notice. But if you're averaging this over the earth and over the course of a year, that difference represents a lot of heat, a massive amount of heat. We're talking about a huge system. And if you know anything about physics and thermodynamics, you know that uh, when you have a mass as great as we're talking about here, uh, the lower atmosphere basically, and the oceans, that difference in temperature represents a huge amount of heat. And the difference is very, very significant. Now, because the system is so large and massive, it takes a long time to change. So even if we were to bring greenhouse gas emissions down to zero tomorrow um, from what they are now, which is about 50 billion gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent per year, even if we were bring that down to zero tomorrow, we would still be locked into about another degree centigrade of warming uh, because it takes that long for the temperature increase to show up um, because of the mass, the physical mass involved. And, and we're not gonna bring emissions down to zero tomorrow. So, you know, I would say, you know, the best we can hope for, which I think we could cope with would be around a three to four degree um, increase in temperature if we really work at reducing emissions now and over the next, you know, 10 years, especially, but also the next 50 years, we can do that. So I am optimistic, but we are, <laughs> I, I'm talking for a long time here, sorry. Um, to address your question directly, Andrew, we're going to have to adapt a lot. And the impact is going to be greatest, unfortunately, in poor countries, in the tropics, which are least able to do, deal with it. And they're they don't have as much money, uh, as, as much resources uh, to adapt, to build seawalls or to move to higher ground as we do in Europe and North America and Japan and so on. 
And number two, just the uh, impacts in, um, of climate change are gonna be greater in those countries. So for those two reasons. So there are fairness and equity issues here. Um, you know, Bangladesh has contributed basically nothing to the greenhouse gas emissions that are causing climate change. But Bangladesh, you know, is going to be suffering huge impacts from climate change uh, in terms of sea level rise and, um, and hotter temperatures. So there, we have to deal with those equity issues and, and that's very difficult. That's quite sad to think that those who contribute the least are gonna get affected the most. It raises a lot of moral questions and who's actually responsible for what. Um, I know you mentioned really briefly the Paris Climate Agreement. So I kind of want to circle back a little bit there. Um, I guess to start off broad, what are like the potential implications of President Biden rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement? And is that going to be effective enough or do we need to do something else in addition to it? The implications are uh, major. You know, the United States is the second largest uh, greenhouse gas emitter in the world after China. If we're not participating in the process, then the world is going to make less progress, uh, both on both mitigation and adaptation. Um, if we are participating, we uh, will inspire other countries to do more than they would have otherwise. Um, I don't know how much more, but uh, more is better than less. And you know, a great example is this climate summit that we've had for the last couple of days. The United States put forward its own new pledge, which was more ambitious than the one we had under President Obama, uh, much more ambitious than the one we had under President Trump, uh, which was nothing. Um, you know, it was a little disappointing that more countries who participated in the summit did not put forward their own new pledges, but Brazil did you know, there are some credibility problems there with Brazil, uh, as there are with the United States actually. But still, you know, um, Brazil did something and Brazil is a big emitter as well. A um, Couple of other smaller countries did, but everybody was talking, the US was the host, this was a good thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it meant a lot for the international community to uh, welcome the United States back. China, the Chinese foreign minister said at one point today, he said, this is actually not such a big deal that the United States is holding this summit. It's basically like a truant coming back to class. Uh, we shouldn't celebrate that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm not sure how helpful that comment was. And uh, on the other hand, you can't blame China and other countries around the world for being annoyed at the United States. Uh, on account of our behavior over the last four years and being perhaps a little skeptical about, you know, will this all change uh, after the next election? But here we are, you know, things are better and um, that's a good thing. One of my questions about this pledge is how feasible it is because um, yeah. you brought up um, some ideas about geoengineering and that doesn't really have to do with reducing emissions, but um, you mentioned that some of them are really expensive and I'm sure a lot of the best paths towards um, renewable energy and reducing carbon emissions are equally expensive. So do you think that the US can reach this goal? And the same goes for Brazil and other countries that have made pledges. How feasible do you think these goals are? And if they are feasible, how do you think these countries should go about implementing them? 
Yeah, excellent question. Um, there are really two parts to the answer to that question. Uh, one is, do we have the technology to achieve these goals? And, and let's talk about the U.S. goal, maybe. Uh, second is, uh, you know, do we have the ability to organize ourselves uh, politically and policy-wise to implement those technologies? I think technology-wise, we can do it. Um, and technology keeps improving, as I mentioned earlier especially renewable energy technology, which is key. Uh, there are other types of technology that are important too, but let's hold off on that. But the question is, you know, can we, uh, the United States, implement the policies that are needed to mobilize those technologies and do the other things we need to do to cut our emissions in half um, by 2030? And, and that's a big question. You know, there are two types of policies at the federal level in most most countries, uh, there's regulation, which can be put forward by the executive branch alone, uh, assuming there's relevant law existing to um, support those technologies. And then there's creating, you know, passing new laws, which requires the Congress. And um, right now we can't pass new laws on climate change in the United States because the US Senate is not willing to do so. Uh, you need 60 votes in the Senate to pass almost all new, new laws. There are a couple of exceptions, but climate change policy is not one of those exceptions, unfortunately. So you need 60 votes and you don't have 60 votes to do anything on climate change um, right now. And, you, and for the near foreseeable future, actually. So that really calls into question our ability to achieve this uh, objective. There's a lot the Biden administration can do with regulation. Uh, and executive orders and so on, but not enough to cut emissions in half. You need new laws and you're not gonna get them. So I'm not optimistic that we're going to achieve this target. Just sort of thinking about it in terms of, from the standpoint of either us as individuals or companies as essentially just non-governmental bodies. I feel like climate change is sort of like the big externality where like, it doesn't have the immediate impact on our day-to-day -day lives or like for a company on their profits. So I just sort of wonder, like, in your mind, is it something where it's really like on governments alone to sort of deal with or are there ways that we can make this more of a personal issue or an industry issue rather than just banking on governments to make things happen? That's an excellent and very important question. Um, by the way, there's a really good podcast called How to Save a Planet. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of it, but uh, I listened to it. You know, it's on Spotify and everything. And they had an episode on precisely this question, you know, how much can individuals do and how much is policy necessary? Um, maybe a month or two months ago, you can find it. In any case, um, you need public policy because uh, as you suggested, Andrew, Climate change is a negative externality. It's a result of using the atmosphere to dump your greenhouse gas emissions without having to pay for it. And you need public policy and new laws to internalize that cost um, of dumping your greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And more precisely, the cost of the damages that result from that in the future through higher temperatures and more wildfires and so on and so forth. So you need public policy, but where do you get public policy? Where do you get new laws? You know, I mentioned earlier that I'm not optimistic about the US Senate passing any new laws on climate change. Well, 
what's the answer? You change the composition of the Senate. Um, I'm hesitating right now because I'm not supposed to be political being at a university um, and I'm not actually, uh, but it is a fact that I believe it's a fact uh, that the most important I've, thing I've done individually in the last year to address climate change is vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Now I wasn't out there campaigning for them, but I just knew that they were gonna do more about climate change than the other guy. So one thing you can do is as an individual, and I believe the most important thing because it affects public policy is work to get people elected, not just in Washington, but at the state level and even the local level uh, who are committed to at least trying to do something about climate change. But that's not the only thing. Um, you know, through your work, um, you know, you might choose a career that is aimed at addressing climate change or in one way or another, maybe engineering, working on energy storage or something like that. Or maybe if you're a writer, you know, uh, you can influence other people to change their behavior in certain ways that result in lower emissions. So there are things you can do as an individual and um, I think he has changed on this, even though you need public policy and you actually need international cooperation too, to bring down emissions on, uh, to the extent that we need to. But, but I actually think that ultimately individuals are the most important component because society and the world is made up of individuals and there are ripple effects. So, you know, for some of us more than others, I'm not a very charismatic person, so I'm not sure how I affect other people, uh, but we all affect, affect other people by our behavior. And so there are ripple effects. If we change the way we do business, then it's going to affect others and that's going to affect others and so on. Uh, whether it's with regard to politics or technology or um, you know, how we get to work and so on. Yeah, I really like your take on that, and and especially about individuals, because honestly, right, it how much can the big parties do if if us individually don't take action in in small steps? So, I also would not it, say that you're not charismatic, but you know, to to each you. their own opinion. Thank you. Yeah, uh, let me add just one thing: the emissions, the result from our own individual lives, are totally are approximately zero. You know, so. There, there's nothing we can do to significantly affect climate change by riding a bike instead of driving a car, okay? But we can set an example by doing that of uh, model behaviors that you know, need to be replicated on a large scale. And that is important. You know, even if nobody's looking, we're modeling those behaviors. Um, and you know, each time somebody does that, it has an effect a positive effect. So uh, I think it is important, uh, you know, to some of my colleagues disagree with me on this. Uh, but I think it is important what we do in our individual lives, uh, because it's going to project beyond our individual lives. Oh, yeah, that that's for sure. I, I definitely see that as something that you know, needs to be said more or like that's the kind of message that needs to be projected out more because to be honest, right, I think the the latter of what we were talking about before and how people view climate change 
is more directly like, you know, coming into this conversation, actually, most of us with a very limited base knowledge basis on this topic would go, oh, yeah, I'm helping climate change by riding my bike instead of going to taking my car, right, which is kind of the myth that you just kind of busted down. But yeah, a very important point to be made in itself. I was just kind of intrigued by the topic area we're discussing, because I personally believe that, yes, a large part of change stems from the individual level because it then um, projects to other people. Like, I feel like companies, if they might find loopholes and policies, like I heard this story one time that there was this company and I can't remember the name, which is quite sad, but I will switch it up later that, um, did like, I forgot exactly what it was for, but it was like a sustainably made label, but they put it on the price tag. And what really was sustainably made was only the price tag, um, not the actual piece of clothing. So I found that really scammy, um, but it kind of goes to the fact that companies will find loopholes, but the only thing that will really bring change in this kind of um, area is if the public perspective is one that is benefiting the environment rather than allowing this to happen. So then companies will be more prone to kind of buckling down and doing things that benefit. Of course, that's not the best option. We want people to do things for the right reasons, but if we can get the public opinion to be one that views those that are views things that are harming climate change to be bad, then I think that will induce more long lasting change. Yeah, um, I had a question regarding like the relationship between COVID and climate change, specifically with regards to how with the COVID-19 pandemic, people were inside more often and staying at home and they weren't really using cars or other forms of transportation that would contribute to the rise in global temperatures. But then in addition to that, pandemics could also become more common with the climate crisis because of the fact that like hotter temperatures increase the spread of disease. Um, so I was just wondering what your take is on that or like what the implications and this like contrast between um, pandemics possibly not contributing as much to the climate change crisis, but then the climate change um, crisis like causing more pandemics to occur. So like that contrast between the two of those things. Yeah. I think the latter is the more important one. In other words, climate change, warmer temperatures uh, are gonna cause more pandemics. Uh, the tropical diseases are going to have a wider, are, are, the, the range of tropical diseases is going to get bigger, the geographical range and so on. So there are definitely um, adverse health impacts of climate change and warmer climates in particular. Um, I think the effect of this pandemic on climate change, you know, emissions went way down last year. <laughs> so way down, but uh, that's not the way you want to do it, right? And uh, it's not going to be sustainable uh, because the economy will bounce back when, uh, you know, as the pandemic fades away, it's already happening. So I don't think this pandemic uh, or any is going to really have that much of an effect on climate change, but certainly vice versa is true. Awesome, nice. Um, I'm going to circle back to a really to a more niche and small topic uh, in contrast to the larger discussion we've been having about, you know, uh, big world um, parties and things like that. So, um, 
let's talk about the role of agriculture actually um as we kind of come to a wrap on our conversation because that's also something that um we talked a bit about off recording but yeah if that's something you want to kind of touch upon in the relationship i'm really curious to know the I think it's kind of explanatory that there is that relationship there, but nonetheless, let's kind of go into it. Yeah, that, that's, thank you. That's an interesting question. Um, about 75 to 80% of global greenhouse gas emissions are from burning fossil fuels in one way or another. The two big things are electricity and transportation. But, you know, about 20% of global emissions, depending on exactly how you count it, is from agriculture. And most of that is from animal agriculture. And most of that is from beef production. So beef production and other forms of animal agriculture in particular are very significant. I mean, 20% is a lot, right? So annual emissions in the world are roughly 50 billion gigatons of greenhouse gases. So 20% of that is 10 gigatons, which is a lot. And, you know, we have to figure out what to do with that. Uh, we're focusing right now more on energy, which is good because if you want to kind of identify the one thing that causes the most emissions, it's burning coal for electricity. So the, the low hanging fruit is not burning coal anymore uh, around the world. And that was part of the focus of this summit actually the last couple of days. But you know, we have to, to get to zero, which we have to do. In fact, we have to go below zero. We have to start taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. And in fact, one of the, we, so towards the end of the century, we have to go negative. We have to have net negative emissions. Uh, and one of the big ways to do that is to plant more trees, uh, to reforest land that was deforested, largely because of growing beef. And, but when I say agriculture, by the way, I include forestry. <laughs> and the two are often connected, as I just mentioned. Now, you can't, and you shouldn't, in my view, force anyone to change their diet. There are health reasons, of course, as well for eating in particular ways and not eating in other ways, but there are certainly climate change reasons as well. But you can't and you shouldn't force anyone to, you know, to change something that goes inside of their body because their bodies are their business. But, you know, I think we do have to find ways to, um, change the system, the agricultural system, so that there are fewer emissions that come out of it. One way is in the United States, a big way, uh, we heavily subsidize corn and soybeans, which is used for animal feed to the tune of billions of dollars every year. You know, and you know, at the very least, we could take away the subsidies for the bad stuff. Uh, and if we're gonna subsidize anything, subsidize the good stuff that doesn't result in basically fruit and vegetables, if you'll excuse me saying so, um, that doesn't result in as many uh, or any uh, very much uh, emissions. And, and then at least the prices, uh, you know, you're on a, on a level playing field price-wise and cost-wise. By the way, that's also true in all of the developed countries. So Europe, Japan, Australia, um, you know, animal feed and grain crops like that are heavily subsidized. Um, I've been reading a bit about um, lab-grown meat, which I've heard could be some sort of a solution. I'm not sure about emissions. That's something I'm curious about if that could um, if that could reduce emissions. But I think what that would be a solution for is that those areas of deforestation that are taken up currently by beef production and probably um, the the meat production for other animals 
Um, and I believe the, the, the lab-grown meat technology is getting much better, much cheaper, much more efficient. And I think in my opinion, at least that has the capacity to um, get rid of a lot of the actual killing of animals. But do you think that could have a measurable impact on emissions? Would that be significantly better for the environment than the current industry? Or would it be about the same if you um, look at- Oh, no. Oh, no, it'd be much, it would be much better. It would be much better. By the way, as much as I sort of don't like killing animals, it's not the killing of the animals in this case that's the problem. It's when they're alive uh, because they emit a lot of methane cause, especially, you know, we may be against killing animals for, for other reasons. Um, but as far as your question, Clifford, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, that could be huge. Uh, that's one of the things Bill Gates is in. I don't know if you count the uh, Impossible Burger and so on as lab-grown meat, but certainly it's a meat substitute. Uh, but that general category of meat, especially beef substitutes, could be could be huge. You know, if they're good enough and tasty enough, so that people you know really take them up. Yeah. <laughs> Great minds think alike because I was exactly thinking of the same thing, bringing that up. Um, I know that's not large, um, and I was reading several articles. I follow um, some. French journalism. So I know it's not very large in France yet. I think it's it's a very, very small percentage of what they're trying to do there. But I, I guess hopefully in America that catches on and in the world in general. Um, yeah. could, could, I, could I interrupt, Chloe? For sure. Yeah, go ahead. Just Please for do. a second. Um, you know, you don't know what's going to catch on. So we have to, with climate change, climate change has to do with everything almost that we do. You know, what did we do today that didn't involve using energy uh, from fossil fuels, you know, turning on the light, so, you know, um, and eating and, and, you know, everything. So you have to attack it from any possible angle you can think of. And, you know, obviously shutting down coal plants is most important right now, but you don't know what else is going to take off until it takes off. So um, there may be some person somewhere that, has an idea, comes up with a new technology or a new way to convince people to uh, uh, drive electric cars or something, you know, and, and it, nobody notices at first. Um, I'm a big believer in small beginnings because some particular small beginning might be small for a while, but then just absolutely take off. So, so, so you never know uh, what's going to What's gonna? What small thing is gonna actually cha change the planet? You just gave me a lot more hope for so, France so, now. Then, yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, a lot more hope for for France, given I just oh, said France. that they're they're doing small <laughs> efforts. I was like, eh, you know, they're not gonna take off. But yeah, you know what? You're totally right. I think definitely, you know, small changes have, have a huge impact. Like we're talking about the ripple effect. So yeah, for well, sure. French, French cooking without meat is not going to be French cooking. <laughs> so maybe you're right. Yeah. But we'll let them do yeah. their thing. And yeah. yeah. You know, we'll see. I mean, like, you know, the, I think the article I was reading on actually, um, funny enough for like the certified French exam, but like they're asking you to read these articles about like, you know, how they're having substitutes for eggs. Um, you know what I think about it now, the eggs one was more Silicon Valley. So it was in French talking about Silicon Valley. Beside my point, but they're talking about like replacing these eggs uh, artificially. Um, how do you make the these liquid substitutes to have the same kind of nutrients that are in eggs instead? So you don't have to, you know, like you can keep the chickens in their den and let them do their own thing and make your, you know what's healthy for us on itself. Um, and I think plant-based uh, 
meats as well going back to what we were talking about for meat so um yeah we'll see what happens with that but otherwise this has been a really interesting conversation just to wrap up dr stowe is there any last comments that you have um to address our audience or in general that you'd like to drop on before we wrap yeah i did want to just mention one thing that's i believe is in many believes very important component of uh our global efforts to address climate change and that's carbon pricing it's a particular kind of public policy in which you place a, a tax on greenhouse gas emissions, and that tax keeps going up and up and up uh, over time. Uh, so this provides a price incentive to reduce emissions. I think that alone, you know, uh, will not solve the problem, but I, I think it's a key component of our efforts to solve the problem. A so-called cap and trade system is, a, is another form of pricing system, which we don't have time to describe. But some kind of carbon pricing, as we like to call it, uh, is, is really key. And I, I didn't want to end without just mentioning that quickly. For sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on and delving into this topic with us, obviously. Um, with the times we are in now, it's so much more important to talk about it and to be aware of these things and everything you've, you've helped us uncover and also discover, I guess, in terms of things that we need help with debunking. Um, in summary, keep keep doing the small efforts that you all hopefully are talking to our audience in terms of addressing climate, attacking climate change, like Dr. Stowe is saying, from small areas, from all areas. And uh, Dr. Stowe, is there any uh, inputs that you would like us to drop for people to follow you and or your work? Um. Wasn't, I wasn't prepared for this, um, <laughs> but uh, just Google the Harvard Project on Climate Agreements and you'll come up with our, our homepage. You can follow that. And there's a, a button for signing up for our email updates, maybe once a month, uh, mostly about our research. But uh, we, all, we have our own webinars and podcasts and so on. So. All right, definitely do that then. And with that said, thank you again so much, Dr. Stowe. It's been a real pleasure having you on, talking with you today. And, You're uh, welcome. Yeah. And thanks, thanks so much for inviting me, everyone. For sure. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to Blurred Box with Chloe, Andrew, Pooja, Sophie, and Clifford. If you like our show and want to know more, check us out on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or please leave us a review on iTunes. And be sure to join us in two weeks for another episode of Blurred Box, as we'll be releasing episodes every other Sunday. We would love to hear your feedback, suggestions, and questions, which you can email to blurredbox88 at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Blurred Box for the latest updates. Thank you to our video and audio editors, Yun Zhang and Mosh Kraus. Thank you again for listening to another episode of Blurred Box, and we'll see you next time. Bye.